Hello and welcome to Titanium Talk. My name's Jason Neen and I'm here with Brenton House. How are you doing? Good morning. We haven't talked about iPhone X, so because it's been a few weeks due to schedules and all kinds of things going on. I've got an iPhone X. You got one as well? I do. I like it. It has a lot of cool features. It doesn't like your face, apparently. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think it's that uh, I have to make sure I bring the phone up properly to my face. And a lot of times I'm trying to unlock it and it's too low. So um, I tried doing redoing the face ID with like having it lower, but it, it helps a little bit. Um, right. I think I just got so used to the just grabbing the phone and unlocking it at the same time. Like I would just grab it by the the thumb and not have to do any swipes or anything and just have it open up and be ready. It's just going to take a little bit to get used to. But I, the other features in it, I, re, I really like. I like the screen. It has a lot of cool features, and I know this is going to be the future of, of the Apple phones, I'm sure. Yeah, what do you think about the notch? I actually kind of like it. It kind of gives a separate area for some of the notifications. You know, when you're using an app that is recording, um, it used to be, I think, the whole top bar of your phone would turn red or whatever. Now it's kind of just a little oval that turns red, a little not so intrusive. Yeah. So I actually kind of like it, and I don't think it's going to be that difficult at all to to work around or just making sure you're using standards as far as the areas and protected areas and that kind of thing. Yeah, I um, I don't mind the notch at all. Being in portrait mode, I hardly, hardly notice it. It doesn't really register. And even when I'm playing videos, I like playing videos full screen. And the way I tend to hold the phone anyway is I'll, I'll just hold it with my thumb on the left-hand side. So my thumb is sort of covering that, that notch area anyway. And it does look amazing to have stuff full screen. But I don't see what else they could have done. You know, those those mock-ups that people have done where they've done that really bad app that sort of adds the adds the black, <laughs> the terror notch, whatever it's called, notchless. You know, it ends up, you end up with that curve, a sort of curved screen lower down, and it just doesn't look nice. So I think they, they didn't have much choice with what they did. And I think it, I, I, I don't notice it. It doesn't bother me at all. The only thing that's bothering me at the moment is just the fact that some big apps that I use, like Inbox, are not updated yet, which is very frustrating. Yeah. Especially when you see them do other updates. So an update goes to the store, and you think, cool, this is it. And then you click it and update, and then you launch it, and it's still the same. And it's like, oh, my God. Which which tells me a, a number of things which are sort of relevant to supporting the 10, which is I wonder how many of these apps are doing things wrong, you know, are doing things that are not standard UE kit, that are, you know, doing their own custom user interface and things like that. Because at the end of the day, if you're using um, fluid layouts, if you're using... Um, storyboards, if you're using pretty standard UE kit components, it should scale pretty easily. I mean, you know, you should be able to build that app for the for the relevant SDK, launch it on an iPhone X, and it should be fine. Um, so the fact that there are apps that, that aren't like that means it can't be an easy fix for some, because it should be an easy fix. Yeah, this is one of those times that it'll come back to bite you if you get too much custom stuff and you're trying to emulate a native control instead of just using it. Exactly. It goes back to exactly what we've talked about before, which is it's trying to keep things simple. It's trying to use the standard components. Yes, there's always a case where you may have to go off-piste and do something um, because you have to for a design that you've had from a client or a requirement that you know the normal user interface can't do, or you're trying to create something that's very custom between operating systems you know games especially you know game you know if you load if you load a racing game on ios it doesn't look like a normal ios app because it's a game so it has a different way of working Um, and there's always going to be those exceptions but yeah it's interesting to see the lack of response from some developers on getting updated but you know it's it's a bit like when we went from 
uh, what was it, three and a half inch to four inch phones and five inch phones. And there was always that issue uh, and that period of time. The biggest frustration for me at the moment with some of the regular apps out there is there's a really cool app called, um, it's not a titanium app, it's just a normal native app called ABC Animals. Um, and it's one of those cool little apps that for kids to help them read. And you can sort of, you know, show them animal cards and then do the noises and do the sounds or whatever. And I wanted to get it for my um, second to youngest daughter. And uh, the damn thing's not updated for iOS 11, which is really frustrating. So I can't install it on iOS 11. I can only install it on an iOS 10 device. Oh, wow. So that's really frustrating because it's not a complicated app. You know, it's basically, it looks like playing cards with a picture of an animal and a, a letter. And the only interaction that happens is if you double click the letter, it sort of flips the letter and you can then go into a drawing mode where you can sort of sketch over the letter and try and trace it. That's it. That's the app. You know, there's no sound effects. There's no noise. There's nothing. <laughs> Um, and it's incredibly frustrating that the developer can't just rebuild it with the SDK. So it's actually going to be one of those things I'm, I'm actually going to look at building my own version. I'm going to you know, get a designer, maybe use Fiverr or something, and just get someone to draw the, draw the caricatures of the animals. And I'm just going to do my own version because it's a simple app to do. Uh, my kids are going to need it because I want to, you know, we just had a new baby and we we're going to be teaching him, obviously, to read and try and read and words and things. So yeah, I'm going to look at trying to do some, something like that myself. But yeah, the apps I've been doing, uh, I've either using the default storyboard or some of the older apps have obviously used, um, not storyboard, but launch screens. So it's just been a case of taking the screens, updating it, building it with the latest SDK. And in 99% of the cases, I've I've not had any real problems. Yeah, I've noticed it being pretty easy. Um, yeah, probably just going to those apps that don't use the storyboards. And if it's something custom doing that but it really isn't that big of a deal and i i have my there's a handful of apps out there that i'm i'm waiting on an update as well going back to the the touch id versus face id thing one big difference that i did notice is that with touch id i could add multiple people to my phone so if i wanted to give my kids temporary access to the phone i could just add their thumbprint i didn't have to give them the passcode but with face id i'm locked to one person I'm guessing now they may work around that in the future, maybe um, to allow multiple people, but maybe it was never intended with the Touch ID to do it that way anyway. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I, I would like to see that. I guess there's still a bit of an unknown um, in terms of how it works in detail, especially when you enter your PIN code. So, And you can test this. It's very easy to test this. So, so I've only had one major failure with Face ID. And I was sitting, it's worked in the dark. It's worked with headphones on. It's worked with hats on. It's worked when I've got some stubble, whatever. It's failed majorly one evening when it just would not authenticate me at all. When I was sitting downstairs, not in the dark, but the sort of dark lights were dimmed. And I did have to re, uh, re-enroll. And that's the only time I had to do it. But other than that, it's, it's, it's pretty you can sort of test the way it works, but it's still a bit confusing as to how it works in detail. So let me explain what I mean. My understanding of how it works from what I'm reading and seeing is that you enroll your face. Um, so you're now enrolled. And every time you lift it up to authenticate, it's obviously firing dots at you and doing infrared scanning. And it's working out whether your features match. If your face has changed. So I, I think the first time that I wore headphones when I went out running, it didn't like that at all and it wouldn't authenticate and and in the morning when i pick up my phone and i've not got my glasses on because i enrolled with my glasses on it didn't like that either so my understanding is that when you then look at the phone and it doesn't authenticate you because it doesn't recognize you and it asks you to do your pin 
two things can happen at this point from what my understanding is. One is that if your face is close enough to the original face that enrolled, i.e. I've put headphones on, so it's pretty much the same apart from that, or I've taken my glasses off, so features are pretty much the same except that. Then when you do your pin code, it will take another scan of your face and it will use that to learn to associate with the original scan. So it now has these variations. So it now has that that difference and it can understand that difference. And you can test this because when I've done it, you know, in the morning, when the first time I picked it up and tried to, because I'm short sighted, so I have to literally hold the phone about half a foot from my face um, and it failed. I typed in my pin code. Then I locked it and unlocked it and looked at it again and it worked instantly because it had just learnt the difference with my face. Same with headphones, same with any any variation. So what my understanding is, is that it only does that second scan if your features are within that tolerance. And this is where the confusion has been. So there's been a couple of times where I've like logged into my wife's phone with a pin code and she's been there and I've, you know, I just needed to show her something. But I was trying to consciously avoid looking at the screen, looking at this because I didn't want it to learn my face. But because that was my, you know, I thought, oh, my God, it's going to try and learn my features. But apparently it only does it if they're similar. So if I'm right in what I'm understanding and it's working the way I'm thinking, that if I did look at her phone, it would fail and give me the keypad. If I then keyed in the keypad, it wouldn't scan my face again because I'm not, you know, close to her face. It would just let me in with the pin code. And this is why... The theory is, is this is why when they use the word, you know, face ID has been hacked, it hasn't been hacked. What's happened is uh, twins or siblings with similar features, um, you know, sibling one who owns the phone, uh, maybe they're not twins because we know that twins is an issue, but maybe they look similar to each other. So sibling one has the phone enrolled with them, their face. Sibling two picks it up. Their features, because they're siblings or sisters, brothers, whatever, are are similar and could be within that tolerance level. So that when they type the pin code in, it now scans their face, which means it's merged their face with the other face, and therefore they've unlocked the phone. But it only supposedly does it if the features are close. If they're not, it's just a pin code and it doesn't bother. And from from my testing and playing with it, because you know what I was thinking was what happens if my son picks it up? Obviously his face, you know, he's nine, he's coming up to nine, so his features aren't going to be detailed enough according to Apple. You know, is it going to try and? merge his features with mine and all this sort of thing but from what i've read it doesn't and it it would just you know accept the pin code yeah if that's true then they need to do a better job of advertising that i think because every time it would fail for me i wouldn't enter the pin i would just get frustrated and redo I'd redo it until it unlocks for me i just swipe up again do it again swipe up again do it again so this is how this adaption thing is quite interesting so the first time i put the headphones on and i i, I authored and it worked you know, since then, I've been able to put um, literally headphones on one of those woolly hats over the top of my head that's covering my ears and, you know, going across my forehead. It still works. I can be shaven, clean shaven or have stubble and it still works. I can take glasses off and it still works because it's constantly correcting itself. If you, if you know, the only time I've even had it, actually, I think I had it with uh, I was cleaning my teeth. I had a toothbrush in my mouth and it worked. Um, you know, didn't didn't need the pin code. It just worked. It still recognized enough of the face. But that's that's apparently where, it, you know, the only time if you hold your hand over your mouth or something, it can get confused, obviously. But again, you could do the pin code and then it should learn that that's a possibility. But it's quite interesting. I mean, I, personally, I found it. Touch ID for me was always OK, but I tend it's really weird. I tended to I was it was almost like muscle memory. I tended to just press the home button and key in the pin code, uh, even though I had touch ID, <laughs> because sometimes touch ID 
um, you know, my fingers would get rough or they'd be a little bit moist or something from showering or running or whatever. And so it would fail. And so I just sort of give up with it. And I wouldn't, even now with my iPads, I've only recently just got around to re-enrolling my fingers and things on the iPads because I was just literally tapping the pin numbers all the time. Um, so for me, it's been much more reliable apart from that one little blip. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about like the wet finger thing that that would be annoying everyone's wealth. But so, and I think it, they'll improve with every iteration probably of iOS and of the, of the devices. They're going to be able to improve on that, both software and hardware. So, yeah, I mean, going back to iOS, you just reminded me of something with iOS 11. The biggest issue I've had, so I haven't had any real issue supporting the device for apps that I've built. The biggest issue I've had are these new iOS 11, which I think are iOS 11 permissions around the media library and stuff. That's been the biggest problem with submitting apps to the App Store, which I know there's been in Slack and pe- few people have talked about and mentioned. Um, but basically what happens is if you're, if, you're, if you're using anything to do with photos, let's say, so you're using ti.media, you're opening the gallery, opening the camera, that ti.media sort of namespace that you're in has lots of different things that get touched. And one of those are, you know, camera, photos, but also media as in music because it's still classed as media. So I was seeing situations that I was getting and other people were getting in Slack where they were submitting apps to the App Store and they were being rejected because they didn't have the permissions in place. And it turns out that the solution is to just put all those keys in the TI App XML iOS section. I can't remember the names now, but it's, you know, it's music usage, it's photo usage, it's all those different things. You won't suddenly, you know, launch your app and see, oh, I need access to your music library. That's not going to happen. It's only going to happen if if you're doing the specific calls for those things. So, you know, I can add all the photo gallery stuff I like in terms of permissions in, I can literally just put a whole block of permissions in my TI app XML, but they will only come up with pop-ups if I try and access the gallery or I try and access the camera or I try and access Apple um, the music library that's the only time it's going to pop up with that stuff which is it's either going to pop up at that point or it's going to pop up if you ask for authentication and then it's going to say you know I need permission so it's fine to have that stuff in there it's not going to it's not going to pop up until it's required or until you use it or until you force it to pop up because obviously you can make it pop up earlier in the app if you wanted to but it is necessary otherwise your app gets rejected which is a little frustrating yeah I'm guessing uh, and this is purely a guess that probably future versions as titanium grows is going to maybe separate some of the libraries out a little bit that that would only make sense to adapt to apple's changes to only install the libraries that you might be using but yeah it's a simple workaround right now yeah that would make sense i mean i've had uh, I, again i think it's an ios 11 thing and maybe if i find out what it is I'll write something up on it or I'll, I'll talk about it again. But I've, I've just built an app that's a sort of 360 viewer, photo viewer app in Titanium. And it was working absolutely fine on it's that whole thing where you're developing during a transition of OSs. Everything was fine on iOS 10, on simulator, on device. I had it in test flight. It was submitted to the App Store. It got rejected because of a crash that was happening. And the crash was relating to using alloy models and collections and up and I think it was editing the name of a of a photo, which was working fine before, but for some reason would cause a crash. So I uh, and I couldn't rec- I couldn't get it working again as it was, which was the strange thing. I was trying in different SDKs and things, but basically the workaround was I had to do a silent update of the model and then I had to force a re- refresh, and that was fine. But the other issue I've had last night was almost like some weird condition with events and the way that the events are firing. Um, that works fine on simulator, but on device, it was failing. 
and on my iPhone 10 it was failing. And basically I was opening the gallery, I was getting an object back, I was getting a, you know, a, a, an object back which then has the blob of the image you've selected. I was then firing a, um, an alert, alert dialogue up, which gives you a text field to give it a name. So you've just picked your image, you're now being asked to give it a name, then you save and then it adds it to the list and caches it locally or whatever. Um, so it's got that photo ready to ready to view. And it was failing. It was failing to get to the the part where it was getting the photo. And when I was, you know, console logging it and checking it, the the event coming back was was blank. Uh, well, actually, the media value was blank because there was no image coming back. But the event itself was really weird. So instead of the the sort of E object, I normally name them, um, instead of it coming back as a normal sort of uh, JSON object when you read um, console log it out, it was actually coming back as a function. It was coming back as a crawl object, which was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's it's the event. That's weird. Yeah, it's the event handler for the for the open gallery. So I don't know the detail of this yet, but all I can tell you is what happened. So I thought, okay, it's not coming up with the alert dialogue. If I do it on simulator, it works fine. If I get rid of the whole section below that asks for the alert dialogue stuff, it seems to return a media object. It seems to return a correct event object with a media property, which is the blob. So I was sitting there looking at this thing, and it says, you know, it's a crawl object. So I figure, well, I'll just I'll just call the crawl object. You know, it's it's a it's some sort of function. So I called this e object that was coming back from the open gallery. So I just called it, and what happened was the alert dialogue pops up. <laughs> And it's like, okay. And at one point, all of my variables were named differently. So I was absolutely sure there was no confusion about using E multiple times and having E nested in E and all this stuff. But somehow, this event that was coming back to the function from the open gallery was being polluted by the stuff that was happening further down. So I don't know what the cause is because it works on the simulator, which is the most confusing thing. But it doesn't work on an iPad. It doesn't work on my iPhone. Um, so, and I was doing, I, if I did a, a live view, uh, debug to the phone, it was working. <laughs> this is the crazy thing. Um, if I can, if I can recreate it consistently, I'll, I'll try and work out what it is and write something up on it, but very, very weird and frustrating. It's always those little things that can throw your estimates, blow them out of the water. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's un- unbelievable. Cause the app was done. You know, the app was done. It was working. It was signed off. It was being sent to the app store. Um, and then you just get these annoying little issues that don't make any sense when you're trying to debug, especially the inconsistency. But when you've sort of done everything that you can do and you're getting two different results, it's very frustrating. That's funny, though, that it, it is very satisfying when you find it, it is your error. <laughs> what else do we need to talk about? Let's talk, Oh, there was, a interesting, there was an article on 95google.com about... Uh, this new Google op- there's a new Google OS called Fuchsia, uh, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly. I'm not sure if it's going to be a replacement for Android or it's something else, but it could be for like IoT devices or something. Um, but basically, Chris Latner, who was the guy that invented Swift, who worked at Apple and then left Apple to go to Tesla uh, for a couple of months or three months and then left there, he's now working uh, the machine learning at Google Brain. So he is involved with Google and he is looking to bring Swift support to this operating system called Fuchsia, which is interesting. I'm not sure what that means for Android. I'm not sure what that means in terms of Fuchsia relating to Android and things like that. The interesting thing here is that it's Swift, and Swift is open source, and we know that there are examples of web-based you know, to, uh, tools that you can go to and try Swift code. I think IBM have done something, um, and obviously there's Swift on iOS. And so 
the initial reaction that you might think that some people could have to this is awesome. We can code apps on, you know, with Swift on Android and we can code apps in Swift on iOS and we can code web apps with Swift, which means we don't need tools like Titanium anymore. We don't need these cross-platform tools because we can write it all ourselves. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is the fact that just because you can code in Swift on these different platforms and these different devices and these different operating systems doesn't mean it's the same as using a cross-platform solution. I would say it's more like doing Hyperloop. You know, you can write JavaScript uh, and you can get access to the full underlying SDK with Hyperloop. But your Android code is not going to look like your iOS code. And if there was web version of it, the web version is not going to look the same either because, you know, the underlying SDK is different. And that's why, you know, we have the Titanium SDK with the cross-platform elements so that when you create a button, you're getting a button everywhere. Where you create a tab group, you're getting a tab group that maybe look different, but it, it's the same interface on both iOS and Android. That's the beauty of that cross-platform layer. And you don't get that. It's a, so it would be exactly the same as if you said, great, I'm going to use Hyperloop to build Titanium apps, and I'm going to build everything in Hyperloop. So you're having to write loads of Android code, you're having to write loads of iOS code, and maybe you've got some shared libraries that you can use as well. Um, you know, it's not the same as cross-platform. It's the same language, but you're still writing stuff twice, pretty much. Yeah. It, any of the library, everything's going to be different. <laughs> yeah. The only thing is, if you're, the only advantage would be if you were familiar with Swift, uh, it might be easier to use their APIs because you have an advantage with the language. But... Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when the day comes and if the day comes where they suddenly said, OK, we've created a, an additional layer on top of Swift, which is a user interface layer where, you know, not not UEKit, but you know what I mean, that sort of thing where you can say, OK, I'm going to create a button. And now the underlying code is going to take care of creating that for Android. It's going to take care of creating that for iOS. Now you're talking more of a cross-platform solution. Uh, but at the moment, I don't think there's anything to be too excited about or worry about or anything else because, you know, we're still a long way from anything like that happening. Um, and we we can see from the, you know, from the fact that Titanium has been around for so long and has, you know, improved dramatically since it first came out um, and with lots of cross-platform uh, capabilities that have been added and improved and removed and changed and everything. Um, just how difficult it is to do this stuff um, and how other solutions out there like react native and native script have come along and are still learning from that sort of experience you know react native recently just removed the need to when you first create a project have two separate index files you know there used to be index underscore android and index underscore ios and now there's one single file you know it's taken them a while to realize that that's a better approach rather than splitting at the start yeah i uh, even projects like uh, Xamarin, you have completely separate projects for their cross-platform. I mean, they'll have shared libraries and things, but if you're going to do Xamarin, you, you'll have to have an Android project and an iOS project. Yeah, which is where their sort of forms, which is a terrible name because it's not really just forms, but it's their, their sort of forms uh, framework came about because that was trying to create some sort of standardization between iOS and Android so that you can have a, you know, you could create simple user interfaces without having to go down into specific code per platform. Cool. Okay. Let's talk about some titanium news, although we've covered a little bit, but let's talk about um, some blog posts. Well, three main things, Alexa skills blog posts. I'll put this in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, so there's a really cool post called 
Building Bots and Alexa Skills with API Builder, uh, posted by Aaron, but it's actually a video that was done by Lior Brenman. Uh, and he talks about and demonstrates how you can use API Builder to build and host your own Amazon Alexa skill um, and how to create, uh, use API Builder to create a Facebook chatbot, uh, which is awesome. It's really straightforward. There are some templates out there to use. And it's, you know, stuff that obviously is not necessarily titanium and mobile related, but can be because these things can all work together and it's using the same sort of back end in terms of API Builder. So pretty cool. So have you done any Alexa skills? I started playing. Uh, I haven't done anything with API Builder yet. I need to. I mean, it's crazy. It's 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 so simple. I should just be able to get on with it. So I so I will. Uh, but I did start playing around. The thing, the main one that I've been playing with, having sort of five kids now, is some sort of reward system. Um, so trying to come up with some. I think you know we've we've just actually got this Disney Circle thing installed, which is quite cool because it stops everything at source. But it was almost like trying to come up with a screen time skill. So I could um, not necessarily give screen time because I didn't I wouldn't want to do that in front of the kids and reveal what the commands would be, um, but having that ability to say to reward kids, you know, reward points of some sort. So you know, who's leading the reward points? You know, who's the leader of the reward points? And it would tell you who's leading or give so and so ten reward points and things like that. Um, trying to, I'm I'm trying to think of some things that I can do to get them in. You know, they use Alexa all the time, and the oh, shouldn't say her name actually. Um, they use uh, her all the time for different things like playing music and stuff but it's trying to come up with things that I think they'd find useful and fun you know they they do a lot of things now where they uh, play rock paper scissors and uh, ask her to tell a story at night which is quite cool so they're starting to explore and work out what things they can do with it Um, but I really would like to write some I'm trying I'm also trying to work out whether you know it's, it's like finding a good project there's stuff that you can do for yourself as well but as well with clients it'll be really cool to to do one that could be related to a, an app that I might be building so that you could actually say to people, well, you know, we'll build your app um, and we'll give you like a simple web dashboard to be able to look up stuff, but we'll also give you an Alexa skill you can use to get sort of details and stats and things. So, that, you know, it'd be quite interesting to, to see. I've also, we've just got the Echo Show, the one with the screen. So I'm, I'm also interested to see how that, how that varies and whether, you know, you could display information um, that you can then control because that would be quite cool to look at, I don't know, tickets. You know, what are the latest tickets or uh, what's the latest, um, you know, tickets on SDK 7 or or what um, issues have I got in my GitHub repo, things like that, and then get those results back. That that could be quite interesting. I think it's so so easy. I um, keep on kicking myself for not having built something yet. But yeah, I've, it's on my short list for trying to get, get a skill done and yeah, integrate it something mobile as well so that that would be really cool my wife keeps on unplugging the alexa though because uh, uh, uh we'll be sitting there like watching a tv show or something they won't even say the word alexa but all of a sudden just start talking and i was like she's like it's listening to me again so she'll unplug it but <laughs> no the biggest problem we've had is um i put them in the kids rooms because they you know love playing music and stuff and when the new call features kicked in, we'd suddenly find out they were calling their cousins and things, um, or call, calling you know calling other rooms in the house because you, you can use it as a simple sort of intercom system. But having and it was really difficult because at some point you just wanted to say, look, you know, it's eight o'clock at night or whatever, go to bed. You can't be playing music and stuff. And especially with the show where they worked out how they could play movies on it from Amazon Prime. Um, but I have to say, you know, if anybody is in that situation where they've got kids and they trying to control screen time and everything that Disney circles come out over here and it is amazing. It's just a little box. You plug it into your, uh, you connect it to your Wi-Fi network 
um, and it, you can then plug it in via a cable, but it, it has no, almost like zero config. The only thing you have to do is tell it the Wi-Fi network. After that, you can plug it on a cable to get it you know, much more uh, faster, but it was fine on Wi-Fi anyway. But essentially, in a nutshell, what it does is it spoofs um, the network so that it pretends to be the router. So it intercepts all the, uh, the gateway. It intercepts all the gateway um, requests. So now you have a complete list of all the devices. You can associate those devices with a child or a profile, and you can put um, you know, uh, snooze times and things in place. So now I have like, you know, any kids' devices and the echoes that are in their room are within their profile. And so it's all, there's bedtime mode. And when bedtime kicks in, they can't do the echo anymore. So it works That's great. pretty cool. I know. And since getting it, which was Monday, I think I set it up or no, Sunday, I think I set it up. Um, this week, getting them ready for school has been a dream because they're not glued to screens or they're not going downstairs because you can literally add in all the devices you can do you can do um your you know your TV um box that might be using on demand services all of that stuff can be you can literally just turn you can even press a button and turn the whole house off you <laughs> know there's a house pause button and you can pause internet across the whole house which is pretty crazy um but yeah i know it's nothing to do with mobile really but it's a it's a, a cool thing to definitely get in place if you're in that situation yeah i think i definitely want to check that out and I think I have some features on my router, but um, yeah, it's not an easy configuration. So, yeah, it's amazing because you could do screen time stuff. You know, there, there's these um, apps that do MDM profiles, and so you install the MDM profile on the on the machine, on the you know the iOS device or whatever, and then you can. I mean, all it really allows you to do is turn off third party stuff. So if I turn off one of the kids' phones, effectively, all that happens is all of the third party apps disappear, and it's just the stock apps without Safari. You know. They can literally, I think they can play some local music. They can't even watch videos or anything like that. Nothing is downloaded, is visible. As soon as you turn it back on, everything comes back. And, but that's the only real control you've got. Whereas with this, what's interesting is you get usage per app or per website. So for certain apps, I can see like games, I can see the exact usage. And you can actually say limit it to a time period or just block it. Um, so it's brilliant. I mean, they, they hate it, obviously, but. It's it's definitely a, a good thing to look at. Um, and I'd love to try and link that in. I'd love to know if there's APIs that I could sort of do something there and link it in with Alexa because that would be pretty cool to be able to do, um, you know, give them screen time or turn off certain devices using uh, using Echo. I'm going to keep calling it Echo so I don't set her off. Um, what other posts have we got? We've got the Marketplace, brand new Marketplace that's gone up, which is at Marketplace. I think it's marketplace.axway. Yeah, which is at marketplace.axway.com. Yeah, it looks very slick. Design. Yeah, brand new design as part of the whole Axway um, sort of merge and, and rebrand. Easier way to discover stuff. You can find you know, API builder components and connectors quite easily. There's a titanium option. There's lots of scripts and good categories down the left-hand side. There's a showcase. There's a popular product section. So it looks, looks really cool. Um, so hopefully that's going to be an easy way for people to find things. There's also, um, I'm not sure how many people are aware that Git.io was acquired by Accelerator, now Xway, um, last year, I think, or earlier this year. And so the Git.io service is currently going through some work, reworking at the moment. Um, we're going to be adding in Hyperloop capability to look up Hyperloop modules uh, and install those modules. Um, and looking at just rebranding it and, and tweaking a few things. But essentially, the service and the sort of features of the website will pretty much remain the same. Uh, but obviously, we wanted to get Hyperloop in there. 
uh, and the, you know, the CLI will be improved to allow you to install Hyperloop modules. And we're working on some way of, because um, the way that Git.io works is it obviously scours GitHub, but it's looking for certain criteria. It's looking for certain things that identify a, you know, a Titanium module. You know, Titanium module has a package file. It has certain fingerprints that you can pick up in a GitHub repo to know what it's about. And you can look for things like a distribution folder to be able to then install it and stuff like that. With Hyperloop, it's a bit more convoluted because if you look at some of the demos that people are putting up on Hyperloop, like our own, like the uh, the Axway's own uh, Hyperloop examples repo, they're typically put up in the examples I've seen so far as a full app. So a full app demo is put up with the Hyperloop features in it, which is fine. Um, and that's quite good because you can look for things like appc.js file and you can look for aspects of the appc.js file, which will identify that as a Hyperloop project. So you now know that that repo is a Hyperloop project uh, and it has a Hyperloop module in it. Um, where it gets more difficult is if you write, say, TI speech or something like that as a Hyperloop module and you just stick it in a repo, you know, in the root of the repo with a readme. <laughs> All of a sudden then it's more difficult to work out that that's a Hyperloop project, you know, unless you're looking for things like um, require UE kit or require UE foundation or require Android equivalents. There's no easy way to know that's a Hyperloop project. Now, there's things you can do in GitHub with tagging and other things which can identify that. But if you just do some searches on GitHub for, I was doing some variations of the searches for Git.io to look on GitHub and just look up Hyperloop and you'll find all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you'll find different libraries. You'll find references to the, the train project. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that, that can be you know using the term Hyperloop. So it's trying to work out the best way of doing that. And the thing we're playing with at the moment is the possibility of having almost like a, not like a package file, but having like a config file of some sort that you can drop into a repo that will then tell the bot that's doing the searching about the project. And then it can pull that stuff out and then put that into Git.io. So there's a few things that are being played with there. But the big news is that Git.io is coming, new version of Git.io is coming, and it's going to have Hyperloop capability in there. And there's going to be lots of other improvements. That's pretty cool. Do you think there's going to be any integration with Marketplace and Git.io in the future, or like possibly, possibly, yeah. I think it's, I think it's short. It's that sort of small step approach at the moment, where right. you know, it would be great if it was, but I guess that's a bigger step to take, and it's, it's, you don't want to say, okay, let's rewrite everything to make it all work together. It'll be much better. You know, the easy approach right now is do a reskin of Git.io. That's fairly straightforward because it's templates and graphics and 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 you know, wording and things like that. So that's the first stage. Then you've got integration of the Hyperloop capability using some of the existing features, um, which requires obviously this indexing stuff to be sorted. And then we could look at potentially doing stuff where you're integrating them with Marketplace. I mean, it has some connotations, obviously, if, you know, if you think about Marketplace, Marketplace has free modules. It also has paid um, components. Right. So it's all it's understanding how that aspect of it works. You don't want to be installing a component for the CLI and being asked to pay for it on the CLI. Uh, it, but you could have a situation where you've already paid for it and therefore you could install it um, or it could allow you to open a, a web view or something to, to deal with the, the payment of that. So there's some additional complexity, I think, that needs to be sorted, but it's certainly possible in the future. Yeah, it, I mean, it would just overwhelm Marketplace if you were to bring in all the modules from Git.io. Um, because, and another nice thing about the Marketplace is that I think it goes through at least a small verification process where a lot of the Git.io, I think, is 
somewhat automated to be able to pick up the latest and greatest stuff. So um, I know each one has its own purpose. So it's good. Um, the other big news is Titanium SDK 7.0. It's a fairly big release, isn't it? Yeah, I, uh, I'm trying it out and it, it looks really good. I think the big thing is it includes Hyperloop with it now. So that is really cool. So yeah, it's a huge release for them. Yeah, so the we've got obviously there's tons of fixes and tons of new features and you know more tweaks to things like iOS 11 and iPhone 10 and things like that. Um, the Hyperloop thing's a big deal um, to have that integrated because I know there's been not a huge amount, but there's been a few situations recently where people are asking, oh, you know, how do, how do I update Hyperloop? How do I install Hyperloop? Um, and there are ways to do that from the CLI uh, by installing it as a module, but this is just going to be built in, so it's going to be taken care of. So it's a bit like Alloy in that sense, because Alloy is sort of built in as well. Now, if you install the AppC sort of CLI and um, the SDK, then you've got that sort of download capability as well with Alloy. The other thing is the Accelerator Daemon. This is basically, this has been worked on for quite a while. Uh, I've, been, I've been aware of it for quite a while and talking to people internally about it. So obviously some of the... I can't remember if the original um, CLI for Titanium years ago was, I think it was Python or something. You know, this is like a long time ago um, in the early days, um, but it was like script based. And then we sort of went into this uh, NPM style um, app that you installed from uh, just from NPM that, that would then let the Titanium CLI and the Accelerator CLI and so on and so forth. And it had the plugin. It's got the plugin capability and things like that. Um, but this is like a big rewrite of that in a sense. So it could, there's still not a huge amount of detail about this. There's some documentation that's been sent around internally that can't be shared at the moment. Um, there are going to be some tutorials and some videos coming out hopefully soon. Um, I'm hoping within the next week or so that are going to be explaining more about the, the demon uh, and what it does. But it's hopefully going to create a better tooling experience when you're building apps. Yeah, I think anytime, I mean, Accelerator adds extensibility to some of their products. It just, it's huge because it really opens up the door and you start seeing what developers are building for it. I mean, when Alloy came out, I mean, that was a huge jump for them as far as the plugins and widgets and different things. And I don't know a lot of details about this, but I really think this is going to be huge because of the, simply because of the extensibility and Maybe not all the features that Accelerator is going to put into it, but the features that Accelerator allows to go into it. So, uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, if you have something running in the process, I mean, I'm thinking uh, you could maybe build a plugin to be able to do builds on your Mac if you're running on a PC be able to integrate with some of that or I mean there's just a lot of possibilities I think if you have a process running that you can talk to and allow us plugins so like I said I don't know a lot about it but I think it I think it's gonna be really big on that fact alone yeah I don't know with the the demon stuff uh I'm not sure there's been any mention of live view stuff but I'm hoping there's going to be some improvements with that um but we'll find out that'd be really great if uh I don't know how it's going to affect also with other things like you know, TI Shadow, I wonder how that's going to work, if it's going to work with the daemon, if it's going to need to be rewritten, or if you can just use the normal build process to use stuff like that. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes up. Yeah, I'm sure a lot more exciting news coming up soon. 
Anything else you want to talk about? I think we've covered it. Okay, sounds like a good time to finish. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks, hopefully, or if we can do it sooner, we will. Sounds Thanks good. a lot, Brenton. Thank you.